Our scripture, scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. To honor God's word, would you please stand with me? Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You may be seated, and may God bless his word. Amen. Thank you, Alma. Good morning, everyone. So glad you're here today. We've got a great uh, text to be able to work on this morning as we kind of begin a uh, new year with a a new series called uh, The End is Near. So I'm glad you're here today, and uh, let's pray together. Father, we welcome your presence into this room today. Lord Jesus, we want your word to make much of you and to give you the glory that you deserve. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be our teacher today in a passage that is fraught with mystery and awe, a passage that captures the imagination, brings concern and even some element of fear and a foreboding warning to the heart. And we pray that you would use your word today to open our eyes to where we are in relationship to you, that you would use this text to remind us of the importance of spiritual endurance, and Lord, that you would also give us a view today of your infinite power and worth. And uh, we're asking you to do that all in the next few minutes, and we pray that Lord Jesus, you would meet with us and we would just sense your presence, your love, and your power. And we ask this in your name, in Christ's name, amen. An article last week initially caught my attention online because of its rather provocative title. The title was written this way, Loose Christian Movement Says End of Days in May. 
MSNBC.com featured a story on the followers of Harold Camping, who is a radio host and has a website in California who believes that the Bible teaches a very specific day in which Christ will return. Camping's followers have started a billboard and promotional campaign called We Can Know, in which they are publicizing the date of the rapture of the church, which they believe in 2011 to be May 21. So put that on your calendars. I thought, what am I going to feel like on May 21 of this year? It's just, it'll be interesting, especially in light of the fact that Harold Camping has made such predictions before. September 6, 1994 was his last date that he predicted. And if you do a search online, you'll find a YouTube interview where a person interviews him about that particular date. The problem is, is the rapture didn't occur then. And yet, what's remarkable, in spite of false predictions in the past, camping has received a great deal of attention. Time magazine, Associated Press, even NPR News has interviewed him and featured information on this date. And what this goes to show you, this interest in camping, despite previous erroneous predictions, is the fact that it isn't hard to draw a crowd when you talk about things related to the end times. In fact, if I wanted just to pack this place out, we would have taken out newspaper ads, put out uh, signs on the end of the street that says that College Park's going to be talking about the end times. The reality is, is there's a, a great deal of curiosity in this subject. In fact, if you think about it, some of the best-selling books in the last uh, 20 years have, have been end times books. Some of you remember in the uh, 1970s, the, um, the book, The Great Late Planet Earth, written by Hal Lindsey. Another example in my generation would be that from 1995 to 2007, the Left Behind series just took over the publishing industry. Do you have any idea how many books were written in the Left Behind series? Do you know? 16 books. So what that shows you is that teaching or writing or talking about the end times is sure to attract a significant level of interest because I think that most people are in varying ways somehow curious as to what the Bible says about the end times. So today we begin a series called The End is Near and we're going to cover Matthew 24 and 25. For those of you who are joining us for the first time or not familiar where we've been in our journey, this is the 56th message in the book of Matthew. We began in April of 2009, and we're making our way through this wonderful gospel. The plan is to spend the next five weeks on this section in Matthew 24 and 25, and then to take nine weeks on the Passion of Christ, and then we'll wrap everything up around Easter Sunday of this year. This particular section of scripture, Matthew 24 to 25, is often called the Olivet Discourse because of the location where Jesus gave this teaching. This is, in fact, his fifth and final set of teachings that Matthew collects for us, and it takes place just prior to the the darkest and most redemptive moment in human history, namely the crucifixion of Jesus. If you remember, Just prior to this moment in Matthew 24, Jesus has cleansed the temple. He came in in um, 
very humble fashion on the triumphal entry. There was growing conflict with him, with the religious rulers. And after doing all of these things, he now leaves the city of Jerusalem and he begins to prepare his disciples for what is going to come. In fact, Matthew 26, where our next um, little mini-series will begin, starts this way. And when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that refers to the Mount of Olivet Discourse, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So what Jesus is doing here is setting them up with this teaching, the Olivet Discourse, as to what's going to come with him and also in terms of what is going to come for them. And what you'll find in these two chapters is that this text is loaded with powerful, alarming, and confusing content. Jesus warns his disciples about many events, and, and they're hard to figure out. In fact, um, this text is, is so challenging that I did something last evening that I don't often do in my sermon prep time. About 8 o'clock, not 8 o'clock, I was doing something else at that time, but uh, at about um, <laughs> at 6 o'clock, I, um, I, I ran two miles on the treadmill because I was just so stressed from working on this passage. And so this is, this is a two-mile treadmill passage, okay? That's what I'm telling you. This, this is a toughie. Um, this, this is a difficult one because all of the nuances and the unique dynamics of what's happening here. Jesus warns his disciples about traumatic events, about false teachers, warns them about the desertion of followers. He, he tells them about seasons of great hardship that are going to come. He tells them about the horrific defiling of the temple called the abomination of desolations. We'll look at that next week. He talks about his second coming. And yet, through it all, there's this woven theme of numerous encouragements towards spiritual wisdom and watchfulness and faithfulness and trustworthiness. And then the whole thing ends with this scary statement about the final judgment that's coming, where the Son of Man separates the sheep from the goats, and and they say to you, they say to him things like, "Lord, Lord, we we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name," and And in another passage in Matthew, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And in this text, this final judgment, he says, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. It's a sober, warning passage. And so what we find here is this Olivet Discourse is really important in terms of its conclusion to Jesus' earthly ministry. And it marks the beginning of the end of his earthly teaching Role. At the same time, the things that he talks about are both foreshadowing, predicting, and warning his disciples about what is to come, in some cases, in their lifetime, and in other cases, about things that are going to happen in the future. And in other ways, things that are going to happen in their lifetime that are types or figures, if you will, of what things will happen even in the future. So there's generally three ways to view the Olivet Discourse. The the first is to view it as everything that's in here has already happened during the lifetime of the disciples. That's one view. Another view is to see that everything that happened in this passage is all future. And another is to see as a blending of the two. And and that's my view. It it makes things, frankly, a little more complicated because you're trying to sort through the the, the content of what Jesus is saying and how there's a a near-term fulfillment but with a longer-term agenda. And we'll talk more about this in the number next number of uh, weeks together. But how you approach this text from 
that perspective, whether it's all completed during the lifetime of the disciples or all future or sort of a, a mingling of the two, that, that informs what you see here in a very um, significant and influential way. So verse 1 is where our text begins. It begins with a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And apparently they were leaving the temple, and as they did so, the disciples made some comment about the temple and its buildings. Look at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So my guess is what happened is they're they're leaving the city of Jerusalem. Maybe they turn the corner. They, they see the beauty of the Temple Mount area. And, and it was very, very beautiful. And the disciples said to Jesus, Look at the beauty of the temple. And then they were just enamored with their center of worship. And, and it would have been an impressive sight to behold. However, when you think about what's on Jesus' mind at this moment, knowing that he's just days away from, from absorbing the full wrath of the Father, that he will um, pay once for all a sacrifice for sins, to think that Jesus is now going to usher in the new covenant and the temple worship will be done away with, no doubt the disciples' comment on the beauty of the temple must have been rather disappointing or disturbing or even kind of off-center in terms of how the disciples should have been thinking. And therefore, what Jesus does is he shocks them by telling them about the destruction of the temple. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this prophecy came true in 70 AD when Rome, because of a revolt in Jerusalem where the Jews tried to throw Rome off of their backs, came and held the city in captivity and then completely destroyed the temple. So what the disciples are wrestling with here is the fact that they've said this is a beautiful temple and Jesus now tells them that the central focal point of their world, of their religion, of their faith, this, this symbolic temple that so pictures God's presence among them is going to be completely destroyed. It's going to be completely devastated. And then he goes on to tell them more about the disturbing events that will happen to them, all a part of his plan for their life. And so Jesus' statement must have been, no doubt, disturbing and shocking, and therefore it led the disciples to ask some additional questions of Jesus when they arrived at Mount Olive. Or Mount Olivet. They asked him for clarification. In verse 3, here's what it says. They said to Jesus, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So they asked two questions. The first question is, when will the destruction of the temple happen? And secondly, what will be the sign that the end is near? I take the phrase of your coming and the close of this age to be two ways of saying nearly the same thing. So there's really two questions. When will the destruction of the temple happen? And secondly, what will be the sign that the end is near? So those are two pretty clear and plain questions. The problem is, is if you study chapter 24, you'll find that discerning the answers to those questions is not entirely clear. In fact, I say, I, I would tell you that I think that this chapter is probably one of the most challenging chapters in all of the Bible to really unpack. See, Jesus does give some answers as to when and what, but it seems that throughout the texts, 24 and 25, that Jesus' 
Greater focus is not on a hard and fast timeline, but rather on encouraging his disciples and those to whom Matthew would write about spiritual watchfulness and discernment. So so get this. Jesus tries to answer their question, but he does it in a way, frankly, that's not all that clear. I mean, if Jesus wanted to specifically give them a timeline of here are the events that happened, there's, there's another way to do that. There's specifically things that you could say in a chronology, and, and yet he doesn't do that. Instead, he, his explanation, like a lot of apocalyptic literature, is a bit veiled. It's hard to unpack, hard to understand. In fact, one commentary says this, Jesus is concerned not so much with the when and what of these events as he is with the so what. Although 24, 4 to 35 speaks to some extent about the when and the what, it does so with relative brevity and imprecision. It's veiled. Jesus speaks at more length and detail in 24, 36 to 25, verse 45, about the alertness, trustworthiness, and compassion that will be required of his disciples until he comes. In a word, they are concerned about when he will renew his presence with them, and he is concerned about how they will live in his absence. That's a really important statement. Read it again. In a word, they are concerned about when he will renew his presence with them, and he is concerned about how they will live in his absence. So, this is an important thought to keep in the forefront of our minds as we go through these two chapters over the next couple weeks, because it becomes a rather informative starting point, that when you come to Matthew 24, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a hard and fast timeline? Are you looking for a sort of a handbook towards future events? Or are you looking for this call towards perseverance in the context of events that are yet to occur in the future? So, in, in light of that, let, let me just give you a few cautions about studying the end times. Uh, for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to do my best to try and unpack this passage. I hope to bring some level of clarity as to what's going on here. Although I will tell you, there is a fair amount of um, semi-permeableness, if you will, in this passage of things that I'm still trying to figure out. And if you've got it locked in and you know exactly what's going on here, that's great, and you're wrong. So, Because um, there's a lot of stuff that's going on here, and it's really, really tough. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but the first is this. Listen, be careful not to err by being too lackadaisical or chronological. As with the subject of any um, study of any subject in the Bible, there are ditches on either side of this path. And we have to avoid either ditch. On the one hand is the ditch of a lackadaisical attitude, which means that you would live your life as if it didn't matter that Christ were, go- were going to return, or you live practically as if it's not going to happen. And therefore, you are so focused on this life that you live as if this is it. You never think about the fact of Christ's return. Um, You don't read the Bible in that way. Oh, you may know it intellectually, but in your heart, it's just, yeah, he's coming someday. But And therefore, you just have a lackadaisical perspective. Or maybe you just don't really even care to study it because you're just like, what's the big deal? I just, I want to go home and eat pizza today. You know, I hope the Steelers win next week. You've you got bigger things in your mind than, than what's going on in this text. And so this lackadaisical attitude. Now, on the other hand, would be a, a, the ditch of the 
chronological focus, where you study this subject so much that you become overly fascinated with the chronology or the fulfillment of certain events or trying to figure out, is it, is it, is it China or Russia that's the country of the north or, or what does the Antichrist look like? And, and throughout generations, people thought Hitler was the Antichrist. They thought, um, leaders of Russia were the Antichrist. Um, I mean, they, they thought Gorbachev was and had that birthmark as that's the sign of the beast on his head. I mean, I've seen all sorts of crazy things. And there certainly is a chronology in the Bible, but that's not necessarily the main focus. So the danger of the of lackadaisical attitude is that you could be passive, while the danger of the chronological ditch would be you would become overly predictive. A lackadaisical attitude can lead to a dangerous attachment to this life. You live as though, man, this is, this is, I live for this world. And a chronological attitude can lead to an equally dangerous detachment from our mission in the world. I've had people seriously tell me, yeah, we're just going to take a 40 year mortgage out on our home. We're going to just, who cares about our college debt? Because after all, Jesus is coming in our lifetime. Or who cares what happens on planet Earth? Who cares about taking care of the environment? After all, it's just, we're just, Jesus is going to come anyways in a few years. And this kind of lackadaisical cavalier attitude negating commands about stewardship of life and even of the planet. Um, those are things that, that God has called us to from the very beginning in the garden, to be a good steward of what he's entrusted to us. And so you can have a cavalier attitude, either overly chronological or overly lackadaisical. The second thing is this. Be careful to approach this text with awe and mystery, not just curiosity. By this I'm saying not that curiosity is bad. Don't hear me say that. But rather I'm saying that curiosity without mystery and awe makes the Bible more of a handbook on future events than it does the revelation of the Creator God. As too often has been the case, some people study the book of Revelation to figure out the end of the world And they forget that Revelation's message is that when the smoke of history clears, there is one person who's standing victorious. It's Jesus Christ. They forget that the book of Revelation is not the revelation of future events. Rather, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1. So, if you study Matthew 24 and you find yourself in awe with a fair amount of mystery and at times even a bit confused, I want you to take heart because I think you're getting at what was even intended in the passage. Third, be careful about the presuppositions that you bring to the text. This is just something that I think is when you study the Bible, you just need to be aware of that all of us brings a set of presuppositions or um, basic beliefs or a grid, lenses through which we see the text. When we get into the minutia of Matthew 24, it is very much informed, not only by what the text says, but also by the theological grid that you bring to the text. In some respects, it has to be this way, because Matthew 24 is only one passage of a number of passages that talk about the end times. And when you put all of them together, you form a bit of a grid, and that's called systematic theology. And systematic theology is incredibly helpful, because it helps you to see... The Bible through a lens, putting passages of scripture together, and you really have to do that when you're doing um, eschatology or a study of the end times. However, the challenge is that systematic theology 
is developed through the study of Scripture and specifically through those who have taught us in the past. And sometimes it's hard for us to acknowledge that what we see in the text is really informed by the grid that we bring to it. In other words, the church that you grew up in, where you went to school, the first person you heard teach this, what your family believed, how you were taught, really affects what you see here. Really does. And it may be entirely correct. I just want you to acknowledge that when you come to Matthew 24, what you see in the passage is more informed by things of your past than you probably really even see. So what you see is informed by what you, even more so by what you had in the past than what you really realize or see. Therefore, I think it's helpful just to acknowledge this from the outset, that we have to really understand this when we come to the text. Fourth is this, be careful to get the right order of importance. Be careful to get the order of importance right. We really gotta think through, so, so, What's really important in terms of our view of the end times? Because there is a, there's a rank that has to develop at some point. Or let me put it this way. Who would you define as an end times heretic? We need to think this through, otherwise we'll be guilty of attacking the wrong enemy or making light of things that are really important. And my answer to that question, who would be an end times heretic, would be that I believe that you cannot be a true follower of Jesus if you don't believe that Jesus is really coming back. I think that the second coming of Christ, the fact that he's going to return, is essentially a part of what the gospel is. That we're waiting for the coming of Christ to bring to completion all of our salvation. So in my mind, Christ's return, his second coming, is a fundamental of the faith. And therefore, in my view, everything else really is an intramural discussion. In other words, um, I'm a premillennialist, but I'm convinced that amillennialists, those who believe this is the kingdom, or postmillennialists who think that Jesus is coming back after the millennial kingdom, that will usher in the millennial kingdom, I'm fully convinced that um, those folks are in heaven. And there will be folks who have different views on this, and Jesus will sort it all out. And we have to be careful to be sure that we don't become overly narrow in our own views. For instance, I've told this before, and maybe some of you have heard me say it before, the story of a guy who died and went to heaven, and Peter was showing him around heaven and showing them the beautiful accommodations, the mansions, the pearly gates, all this great stuff, and saw all these rows of mansions, and... Um, you know, there was the Presbyterian row, and there was the Reformed row, and then there was the Baptist row. And as he came by the Baptist row, Peter said, now when we come by this one, you have to be really quiet. And so they were like, what? So they walked by, didn't say anything a whole lot, and got beyond that. And the guy turned to Peter and said, what? I don't understand. We have Reformed row, Presbyterian row, Baptist row. Why do we have to be quiet there? He said, well, that's the thing. You see, we have to be quiet because that's the Baptist row, and they think they're the only ones here. So... <laughs> So, so choose what name you want to put on that, okay? Put premillennialism, put amillennialism, put postmillennialism, whatever you want. The point I think you see is that we need to understand what the order of importance is. As well, um, I think there's even more flexibility as to the nature of the tribulation, the reality, or the timing of the rapture. So in my mind, it goes like second coming of Christ, uh, millennial, um, tribulation, Rapture. That's, that's my ranking of order of importance. In other words, when a person, uh, uh, in other words, when a person believes Christ is coming is far less than if a person believes Christ is coming. 
when a person believes Christ is coming is far less important than if he believes Christ is coming. So when studying the end times, we just have to be sure that we know the order of the importance, lest we spend way too much time arguing about the wrong things or using way too much energy for things that are really intramural discussions. My definition of spiritual maturity is not what you know, but it's knowing what's important. And that's really critical when we study the end times. Now, there's one more caution, but we'll get to that one at the end. So there's a series of warnings and promises in this text in verses 4 to 14 that Jesus gives in response to his disciples' questions. The first warning is found in verse 4. Look at it. Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. The first warning is that they are to be watchful for deceiving and false messiahs. Jesus' warning here is in regards to those who would come after he had left and claim to be the, the Christ, claim to be either the Messiah or claim to be Jesus in the flesh or some sort of aberration of Jesus. He warns them that many will be led astray by this, and therefore he calls them to be aware. When it says see, that word means to wake up, be discerning, be uh, be folks who have your eyes wide open, that they are to continually guard against those who would come and try and deceive them. First uh, John 1, um, John says to his followers, the children in his churches, children, it is the last hour. This is 1 John 2.18. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And so John is warning people already in the early church to be wary of this tendency to be led astray. And and I would just encourage you to, to realize that that's happened even within our own generation, that there have been people who have been led astray. I mean, think of this, 900 people in 1978 who drank a colored liquid in Guyana followed Jim Jones. It's crazy, 900 people. I I didn't realize this until I did some research some time ago that Jim Jones was from Indianapolis. Um, He pastored a church um, in this community, was part of the political establishment for a, a while. He's even a graduate of Butler University. 1961, secondary education, not probably the things you Butler grads are excited about, but just so you know, you went to IU as well, so there you go. But the fact remains is that 900 people committed suicide under his spell. You remember the Branch Davidian fire a number of years ago, and David Koresh. I mean, this, this stuff is real. And therefore, you need to be discerning. I can imagine a congregation this size, there's probably some of you who have a son or daughter that are involved in some sort of strange cult, and you're just worried that, man, what's going to happen? And, and what Jesus is saying here is be warned, be watched, watch out for deceiving and false messiahs. Secondly, he warns about being ready for disturbing events, verses 6 to 8. He says, and you will hear of wars and of rumors of wars, and see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So he warns about national tension, about wars, famines, earthquakes, that the earth and its culture will rise under the effects of sin and will portend that something is yet to come. 
And these events represent the presence of the last days, but they do not represent the actual end. Jesus instead says that these are rather the birth pains, that they are events that are showing us a more foreboding future. Warning number three is to be spiritually prepared for hardship. Verse 9, it says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. I don't necessarily think that verse 9 is talking about the great tribulation, but rather that word can also be translated as affliction or anguish or burden or persecution. That's why the NIV translates it to be persecuted. So he says, they will deliver you up or they will persecute you, put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So it seems that in this context, Jesus is talking to his disciples about something that's going to begin to happen in their lifetime and will intensify, likely in the great coming tribulation, that will have the tone, the smell, the sort of the, the sort of difficulty that Jesus is talking about here. And in this respect, what Jesus is saying here, in my view, is that there's a near-term fulfillment in their lifetime that has long-term fulfillment implications. In the same way that Matthew says of Jesus that the virgin shall conceive and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he refers in Matthew to the prophecy in Isaiah 7 about a young woman who would conceive, and she did. And that real event in Isaiah 7, Matthew looks back on as Jesus' birth and says, well, that was a real event in the past. It was actually a harbinger of things to come in the future. And, And that's what I see Jesus doing here. All of that to say that the disciples need to be ready for a coming season in which they will be delivered to death. They'll be hated by all nations for the sake of Christ. They need to heed the warning that the effect of this affliction in their life and persecution will be that that some followers will fall away. And the lingering effect of the environment of lawlessness will be that the, the love that they have for one another and the love that presumably they have for God will potentially grow cold. So... You can imagine the disciples, who were all juiced about the temple buildings, probably thought, man, I wish we wouldn't have said anything about that. Because Jesus just completely levels the temple and tells them about all these difficulties that are coming. It started with, look at the temples, aren't they beautiful? And wow, did he unload. He's like, the temple's going to be raised, and you're going to be delivered up, and I mean, people are going to fall away, and all these things. Now, gratefully, the passage isn't filled with warnings. It also contains two really important promises. Here's the first one. It is that endurance is possible and will be rewarded. You might look at these descriptions and think, wow, my goodness, it's so scary. And and the reality of the the suffering and the difficulties, whether it's kind of minor or whether it's great, it, it, it just is foreboding. And yet Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This This is not just a statement of fact, friends. This is a hopeful command. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, that work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
This call to spiritual endurance. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. And then he says this. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Why does he say that? Because he wants them to know in the midst of the press of hardship, in the press and the crucible of persecution, Jesus says to them, be faithful unto death. Don't you give up. I'll preserve you. I'll help you. But you endure. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. There is a hopeful promise. In fact, this is all over the book of Revelation. I put a list together of all the ways in which the word overcome is used. Look at these. Revelation 2.7. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He who overcomes will be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Why is he saying this? Is he saying this to give you the facts about what happens when you overcome? Is he saying so that you know all the details of what happens when you overcome? What he's saying here is overcome and don't quit and endure because of all the rich blessings and the beauty that comes with enduring in the name of Christ. He's writing this to people who are going to face immense hardship and persecution and difficulty. So in the crucible of their suffering, when they're ready to chuck in the towel and say, I'm out of here, they are reminded, you must overcome. And by the way, this isn't just in the beginning of Revelation. It's also at the end, at the very end. Revelation 21, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Listen, he who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. And notice, this hit me in a new way, but the cowardly and the unbelieving and the vile and the murders and the sexually immoral. Oh, we love to talk about that, don't we? But as well, he's, he's, he's encouraging and warning and exhorting that when hardship comes, the cowardly, those who abandon, those who walk away, those whose faith isn't real, it's just pretense. And when persecution comes, it surfaces that it wasn't real and genuine. Those are the folks that don't make it in. And Jesus says, instead, he who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who endures. So the message is clear about spiritual endurance of God's sustaining power. It is both promised and rewarded. Endure, endure, endure. That's the call. The second promise is this. God's mission will not be stopped. The the final promise is both a promise and a prediction. So you might think in the midst of all the turmoil and all the suffering and all the hardship that's thrown at the followers of Jesus, 
that because of this, you might wonder, well, what in the world is happening? It seems like God is losing. You ever had that thought? You ever look at the world and everything that's happening and you just think, you know what? Sometimes it feels as if Satan is having a heyday and as though God is really not winning. In the midst of suffering and apostasy and trial, what does Jesus say? Jesus says that the mission of God will not be thwarted. And this gospel, it says in verse 14, of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Meaning, even in the darkest moment of human history, we can be sure that God's purposes will always be accomplished. And if you wonder if that really does happen, I would give you exhibit A, the cross of Jesus Christ. Three warnings, two promises, you put it all together, you get a clear picture that Jesus is doing here more than just identifying facts about his coming. He has a spiritual lesson here about endurance. And that leads us to the fifth caution, and it's this. Be careful to keep the admonitions about watchfulness front and center. Listen to me, the caution really here is the main thrust of what I want you to take from this sermon today, and it's this, in the midst of all that we don't know about the specifics of this passage, one thing is very clear, Jesus is calling his disciples and us to spiritual perseverance in the midst of future difficulties. He's calling his disciples and us to look at our future, both the near term and the far term, through the lens of spiritual watchfulness. So so Matthew 24 begs us to ask ourselves questions like, do I have a personal relationship with Jesus, this one who will come again? So straight up, if you're here today and you don't know Christ and you think that life is just all about what you're doing right now and pleasure and job and money and all this stuff that you're living, you are making a huge mistake. And one day you're going to stand before this Jesus. He knows the inner workings of your heart. He knows the secret wicked stuff that you've done that nobody else knows. And that stuff is offensive to a holy God. And one day you will be held account to this judge who with burning eyes sees right through all the veneer of your life and he knows exactly what goes on in your dark, wicked heart. And if you don't turn to Christ, and have your sins forgiven, you are going to be in judgment for all of eternity. And the question is, do you know this Christ? Because he is going to come again. Matthew 24 begs us to ask ourselves, am I overly attached to this life? If I know who Christ is and I've received him as my Savior, am I overly attached to the things, to the environment, to the dynamic, even the good stuff like family and marriage and and, and job and, and home? Those things are gifts. They're not the giver. Am I ready to suffer in the midst of significant or small moments for the cause of Christ? Meaning, when God puts you in the press... And he calls you to endure. Some of you, God takes away small things and you're ready to chuck in the towel. Do you really think you can endure through any kind of significant difficulty? And yet God calls you in the midst of those moments to endure to the end. And here's the last thing. Do I live with this deep-seated trust in God's purposes that while they're confusing, he's always right on plan? Some of you need to see Matthew 24 as a beautiful, hopeful passage that even when things get really difficult and dark, God is not off his plan. And that not only happens from a grand scale in the course of biblical history, it also happens in the micro. And that means that no matter what happens to you in 2011, hear me, God is right on his plan. 
And that means in the midst of a season when things are tough or difficult, he calls you to hold on and remember that at the end of the day when the smoke of history clears, there's one person who's standing, and it's Jesus Christ. And he's the one who you hold to. And guess what? While you're holding to him, you learn that he's the one that all this while has been holding you to himself. Martin Luther faced such difficulties and challenges in his lifetime that he really thought he was going to die for the name of Christ. And in one of those moments, he penned these words. Did we in our strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who this may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And the message that comes through from Matthew 24 is this. In the midst of all the things that are going to happen in the context of the end of the world and all the things that it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the thing we have to locate our hope in is this single beautiful truth. He must win the battle. And therefore, he urges us not to be too tied in temples and buildings and stuff and kids and family and career and all these things that are good, but they're not ultimate. Instead, to realize that it is following Christ that is the ultimate reality in life because he is the one who wins the battle. May God help us to hear the call to be vigilant and watchful while longing for Christ, our victor, to return. Father in heaven, we pray that your mercy would be upon us as we look at these texts over the next number of weeks. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a sober understanding of what it means to be your follower. For those, Lord, who may be here today, who today, when I talk about the gaze of God upon their hearts, Lord, they know who they are and where they are before you. And I pray that you, by your mercy, would open their eyes to the reality of their need for Christ today and that you, this coming judge, can first be their Savior and Redeemer. Oh God, thank you that you, Lord Jesus, paid the debt of our sin. And then God, for those who, while knowing this, have difficulties that they're in or will face in 2011, I pray that you would give them grace to hold on and know that Jesus Christ, he must win the battle. And listen, if you're here today while you're just in this final moment of prayer and reflection and you need someone to pray with after our service here and in worship too, we'll have some prayer team folks available just to Pray for any spiritual need that you need to talk about or pray through today. He's coming again, friends. Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you. Thanks for coming today.